Do you like the work we're doing here at It's All Journalism? For as little as a dollar a month, you can help us continue the conversation about good journalism. Show your support by donating to our Patreon campaign. Go to itsalljournalism.com and follow the link at the top of the page to donate. When we started with John, I just thought it was like this cool story about a guy who knew, you know, who was there. And I kind of knew the brief bio, the Village Voice, but I didn't even at the time know about his work with Andy Warhol. And getting into the comic, I started to like talk to other people who were um, focusing on underground media for their own sort of history projects or documentaries or, or books. And suddenly found out about John's role with the Underground Press Syndicate, which is a huge, huge thing. Welcome to It's All Journalism. I'm Michael O'Connell, here with another podcast about good journalism and the people who make it. Today I'm talking to Ethan Persoff, graphic novelist, cartoonist. Welcome to the podcast, Ethan. Hey, Michael. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. Now, a few weeks back, we posted an interview with John Wilcock, the alt-press pioneer who helped launch The Village Voice and during the 1960s hung out with Andy Warhol and, and uh, helped launch Interview Magazine with Andy. Now, one of the resources that I used in researching John was a series of comic books created by Ethan and Scott Marshall. It was wonderful art, great story. So first off, you know, how did you guys get involved with John? That's a good question. Well, I first found out about John about maybe six or seven years ago. Um, there was a blog for the radio station uh, WFMU, and they had a listing of interesting records. And one of the one of the records they posted was this magazine called Echo Magazine, which is from the 1950s, and it was dubbed the first magazine that you could read on your turntable. And it was um, a series of flexi discs that were bound together like a magazine with a hole in the middle so you could just flip a page open and drop it on your um on your turntable and that would be the the page or the article and then there would be text on top of that and then just a sound piece that was a that accompanied it and i was immediately i don't want to be over emotive but i was immediately in and lo just in love with, in love with echo magazine when i saw it i noticed that the main writer on it was uh, was John and John Wilcock, and that sort of started my interest in John. And then I started to notice as I got into more underground papers and weird comics and other things that, well, specifically with weird comics, you started to notice that there was the underground comics and cartoonists of the 60s, and then there were also these sort of underground writers that would be included in, in fanzines along with them, or not fanzines, but... I guess, underground comics. And the two names sort of popped up very frequently. One was Paul Krasner, and then another was, was John. And I guess the way that I got most involved with John was that I started to archive Paul's, the full run of Paul's Surrealist on my uh, my website. And um, that was a really wonderful experience. And then right at the end of it, I um, mentioned while I was speaking with Paul, you know, one of the columnists I've really enjoyed throughout the whole run was John, who was a really consistent contributor through the realist, at least in the 60s side of it. And that sort of led to me and John talking. Yeah, John is a, is a pretty interesting, I want to say pretty interesting character, because he seemed to be like everywhere and knew everybody. And uh, but it was not just like a hanger on, but it actually is a creative person as a writer and a reporter and an interview, oh, yeah. interviewer. Yeah. He was a, he was a real guy. 
I mean, people kind of gravitate, you know, you talk about Paul Krasner and the realist and, and, you know, that's, that's a pretty amazing publication in and of itself. But John was, you know, moving in that world. Let me back up a second. You know, you, you mentioned the realist and your archiving of it, you know, what is it you liked about the realist? That was kind of a you know, gra- groundbreaking, satirical uh, publication. Yeah, well, I mean, part of it was curiosity, really, because there wasn't a lot of the realist on the web when I got to, to doing the archive. And so, okay, before I did the realist, I have a website that has a bunch of different archival objects on it. And before I did the realist, this will sound like a pun after saying the realist, but the most realized part of the website was uh is a section called Comics with Problems, which is <laughs> uh, which is kind of like a double term, you know, um, in that they're problematic comics, and they also sort of address problems. And it's just an archive of the worst, like, government-driven comics from, like, the 40s up, up you know, like um, things against smoking or anti-sex comics or weird moralizing religious stuff and all these things. And at one point of just sort of scanning in these often public domain comics and putting them up, I mean, I, I think I have about 75 of them on the site. And at one point, you kind of want to have a relationship with the with the creator of these things. But but you really don't want to contact. If, if they're around, you really don't want to contact them. I kind of wanted an authorized archive of some sort, you know, where I worked with somebody and, and put stuff up. But with Paul, I had only seen maybe four images from from the realist itself. And one of them was the, the Disney. The poster. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I'm, try, I'm trying to be... The, the, polite, polite in the phrasing, but, but the Disneyland Memorial Orgy, which is a poster of by Wally Wood. Wally Wood, yeah, the famous EC comic artist. Genius, yeah. Which is a fun Google for anybody who's, who's listening to this out. Just look up that, that phrase. You'll you'll have a, a fun Disneyland Memorial Orgy there. And so I, I wanted to put that on my site. And I also knew of uh, Jim Lippard had a very small page archiving a segment from The Reels, but it was all text. And I, I wanted like something of a challenge to complete, and so I, I got in touch with Paul, and he didn't even have all the all the issues of the realist. So that was its own kind of challenge was finding every issue and and beginning the archive by saying that we were going to post everything. <laughs> so <laughs> so it's gonna, it started with a promise. So posting those issues actually became kind of an education in itself because which I was eager to have, and um, there's a lot of really weird interesting mental energy in those issues, especially if you read them, you know, one through 146. Yeah, it's weird. And, and you know, the, there a lot of people may not be familiar with what The Realist was. I and mean, I guess we could describe it as an underground satirical newspaper, maybe a little more biting than than Mad Magazine or, or the National Lampoon, you know, may, maybe with a political agenda, you know, more yeah, that, liberal. That you know, I think there's a lot of things that are in there. Yeah, you, you actually described it I think exactly where where it stood. It started with the intentions of being a mad magazine for adults, and then I think it it then thoroughly influenced National Lampoon. So you putting it between those two, that would be yeah, correct. Yeah, and it, it's it's funny when people look back at like the you know fifties, sixties, and seventies, and it's there's sort of this manufactured counterculture that people sort of you know think about that you know that just because certain things that get much more more play that more people are aware of but you know there is this counterculture that was going on that the sort of the realist represented that you know had a real bite to it 
the, yeah. the, through the through the sixties and seventies that you know you don't see a lot. And you know, some people think about you know think about things like punk rock and you know alt music and things like that 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 have a certain you know take a certain sort of stance. But you know that sort of edge has been around for a very long time. Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned sort of like a, a manufactured counterculture because I think it's funny that once counterculture became you know a marketing idea money came into with like advertising or whatever you had. I mean, that did kind of like draw a line between authentic underground publications and sort of commercial ones. Music journalism definitely affected the the life of the underground paper. I, I think that like Rolling Stone is as good as Rolling Stone is. I think that they are considered one of the first publications to murder other publications because they would make just because of the ads that they would take on from record labels. And I think they would have an exclusive control over those ads or something. I mean, I'm, I'm not, I'm not fully informed on the, on the, on the life of that, but it is funny once, once music and other things became, you know, like it's groovy, you know, as like a, as a selling point, there was a difference between the, the kinds of underground papers that came after that than before, you know, and John and Paul definitely are architects of the, the real thing, you know, which I think informed every kind of journalism that followed it. I can talk about John's role on, or one of the reasons with the, with the comic that, that we're excited, Scott and I, um, and thank you for, for mentioning uh, Scott's art. It really is gorgeous. Yeah. Yeah. And so, it, uh, so one of the goals of the, of the comic, um, which I didn't, it was kind of like working with the realist. I didn't even know this was a story when we got started with it. When I started with the realist, I just wanted to archive the thing and read every issue and have like some sort of means of doing that. And I had no idea what I was getting involved, what I was getting involved with in terms of the content. But when we started with with John, I just thought it was like this cool story about a guy who knew, you know, who was there. And I kind of knew the brief bio, the Village Voice, but I didn't even at the time know about his work with Andy Warhol. And getting into the comic, I would start to like talk to other people who were um, focusing on underground media for their own sort of history projects or documentaries or, or books and suddenly found out about John's role with the underground press syndicate, which is a huge, huge thing, which was kind of this, uh, it was a syndicate uh, or a, a collection of different papers that would just agree with each other. Anybody who was a part of that syndicate could could use anybody else's articles provided they gave attribution and there was no real. So it was like a permission system that suddenly made all these disparate papers across the country into an international sort of, and the world into sort of like an international source of like sharing their materials. So all of a sudden, like a small city paper in the fifties, like, you know, like in Austin, uh, we, we had the rag or uh, New York, uh, there would be like the rat or the Oracle and, in San Francisco, although I think the Oracle actually stopped before UPS started, but, but all those papers all of a sudden could share each other's writing. And John was a, very much a leading architect in that. And it just, you know, I mean, it totally amplified the voice of every paper. It's just one of the small, small stories of like a huge impact that John had that was, you know, it's fascinating to me that this person, I mean, it's just one of the things that he helped create. And it definitely it created new journalism, that sort of, you know, voice where you insert yourself as a reporter into the story. And I guess like Tom Wolfe and Hunter Thompson would be, you know, great success examples of that. But I think that modern internet is an example of that, you know. It was almost a paper internet in that, 
you can use sort of music as an example because that's that's an easy thing, thing I think for people to understand that yeah. there are these suddenly there are these movements that appear to have come out of nowhere, but in actuality they've been going on for a very long time with most people not noticing it. But there were people who were, you know, in journalism and in, in, in writing and in, in satire were were sharing a lot of these different ideas and fostering it, and suddenly at some point it breaks through into the larger culture, and then you know as you said you know people like. You know, Hunter S. Thompson is like, where does that, where does he come from? You know, right, right. But in actuality, there's this thing going on, and that, that's kind of why it's important that you know the, the, what you did with Realist is, you know, that you're you're showing that you know here is the here is the stream with which that they all drank from that that <laughs> that yeah. or smoked from, I guess. Yeah, also. smoke from. Well, you know, <laughs> it's funny. It's like um, I remember the first time I heard who was it? Was it? I guess it was the Sex Pistols. The first time I heard the Sex Pistols, yeah. it was like drinking pure alcohol in that you oh, know, yeah. I, there's all this other stuff that I've listened to that that I like and it, there's a lot to talk about that, you know, it's positive. But once you hear that or things like that or bands like uh, Lou Reed and um, his band, I can't think of the name. Oh, Velvet, Velvet Underground. Or... Yeah, the Velvet Underground. Yeah. Once you hear those, it's like, oh, my God, this is the this is the pure stuff. And yeah. all this other stuff comes out of it and reinterprets it and sort of deadens it down. But and then as soon as you, you, you taste that and you realize that and suddenly all these connections are made in your brain is like, oh, OK, now this makes sense. So having a, oh, yeah. a thing like the realist, which is, you know, uber counterculture that it has a distinctive voice that's talking throughout you know the 50s, 60s or the 60s, 70s. And seeing all these other things that, that kind of maybe sprung out of it or were influenced by it that are much more easier for a, a mass audience to consume. Because, you know, you look at these issues, the, the realists, they're, they're fine, but they seem they seem just like a step up from a fanzine in many ways. Oh, yeah. I mean, well, especially because they're mostly text, you know, um, although it, and that's the funny kind of – so if somebody's just scanning it, they don't know that – like even, even the most notorious thing that you mentioned, the LBJ story. One of the most famous things that the realist ever did was there had been a, a guess, a book about the Kennedy assassination. Right. And right. Well, but I, written, I, I, go on. You yeah. you know it. You're probably you're probably you're you're much more familiar with it. Go ahead. Oh sure. Well, uh, no, just it, um, I mean you set it up correctly. There was um, there was a book, a biography. I think it was a biography of Jackie Jackie Kennedy, and either recently like newly published or or was about to be published, and so. The article that Paul wrote was the parts that were left out of that book. So it was, it was supposed to be a straight piece of writing that was just sort of talking about excerpts that didn't make it into the final draft. And so you read which Jackie Kennedy's perspective and, and memory of, of certain things related to Kennedy. And so you read it, and it's like pretty pretty straight. The original was written by, a, by I think, an English reporter and had kind of like that kind of like elegance or that kind of smoke to it when, you, when you're reading the sentences. And so... About halfway through, Paul inserts an anecdote. It's just like one or two paragraphs in the whole thing, basically. And this is the point where everybody struggles to how to relate this information to the people you're talking to. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think I can do it in a, in a radio, <laughs> radio-friendly way, but, you know, kind of what you think are excerpts from a real book. And then one, and there are various scenes, and then all of a sudden Jackie O is on on the, in the day of the day of the assassination and she's with Lyndon Johnson and she's just sort of looking over. And so you're reading also, I mean, also think that when this came out, it was like 67 or 66. 
in the world, and we were still sort of grieving and healing, I guess, from from Kennedy um, being uh, assassinated. So, I mean, I guess some parallel might be, you know, well, I, I don't think we even need to make metaphors. People were people can understand. Hurt. I think that a, that that had a huge impact on. Yeah, it was still in, it's still zeitgeist and whatever. And so and, she looks she looks over and she sees that Lyndon Johnson is having a. <laughs> well, well, okay. Yeah, yeah, okay. There, I, there I is a I, there. There is an act that is being acted upon the former president. That you know, yeah, in a very carnal way, at a very unpla- uh, you know, inappropriate entry point, I guess. And it just continues. And then the and then the article continues. And one of the things that made the reel is so fantastic is there was no disclaimer there. This is satire, or this isn't. And because there were legitimate pieces of news in the reel, it has the distinction of being the first newspaper to ever report birth control pill existing. You know, uh, Paul's a reporter to not Puerto Rico, but um, Paul reported things with an exclusive journalism sense as much as he reported things with a satirical wink. And there was no disclaimer as to whether or not this was really in the book or not the Kennedy biography. And so I think it's issue seven four. If you go on the archive, you can find that out. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, but, but you, you alluded to a couple of things there. It's satire, but you know, for in order for satire to work, you need to present whatever you're presenting in a way that is recognizable and that, that convinces people that there's some sort of reality to it. They need to recognize that this is, this sounds like the biography. And then when you present the something totally out of the ordinary that, you know, that's the satire. That's the, so then it's, you know, the, the, the infamous thing about that, that particular story was that there were many people who, because of the way they felt about Lyndon Johnson and about the assassin, assassination, they kind of believed it or exactly. it was yeah, within right. their, the realm of, you know, yeah, I, I could see that happening. Even, you know, this outrageous act. And so, well, you, well, you know, I, yeah, I can actually define how Paul, how Paul uh, described that. He did a um, interview with Joseph Heller, and he was talking, who did Catch Twenty Two, and he was asking Heller about certain fantastic elements that that made it a story, but were plausible, even though they were so outrageous. And Heller's this description of that was it was possible but not probable, and that became sort of a finding model for for Paul's satirical writing. Yeah. What we've sort of been talking around here is the fact that there's this sort yeah. of alternative narrative that's always out there yeah. and that people right, t- right, right. tap into it. So now here we are, you know, it's, it's 2017, you know, you're writing about about John and just sort of bringing this, trying to bring this to a larger audience. Yeah, uh, pardon me. Yeah, yeah. So was that kind of your, your thinking behind doing it? That was also just for my, for my own uh, thoughts. Let me point out that. Paul and I just put out a book of the cartoons from the realist that's available from Fantagraphics right now. And it says beautiful coffee table book. And so that's a, uh, it's an ad um, for that. Um, that. That's perfectly fine. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, no, no. Just a, just a little plug there, but it's a wonderful book. But John, John actually, his, his own energy sort of urged the, the book to get made, the biography of himself. He, even at approaching 90, I've never, I've never known somebody to be so urgent and capable about like, pushing things into a kind of being. And I think that was sort of his role in the 60s. And that part of your soul doesn't really die out. (laughs) And so I had mentioned to him, you know, that it would be interesting to do do a comic about his stuff. And all of a sudden he was arranging to show up at my house and stay with a week while we had like this huge sort of story session for a week. I mean, literally, 
he showed up, not in a funny way, but he basically said, well, you know, why don't I drive over? But <laughs> most people would say that if they're across town, he was in California and I'm in Austin. And I was like, okay. And then, you know, five days later, he's just literally driven, you know, straight to my house to, to talk about the comic. And so that was part of the idea to sort of realize the comic, you know, was, was his own thing. But then the more we found out about it, John's story sort of starts with you thinking, you know, like, wow, he knew all these crazy people or wow, he was there. And then there's other components to John's story that make it a really interesting narrative because there's also the question of, well, all these people that he was around are really permanently remembered. And so how is it that John sort of gets left out of that story? And, then, and the more that you learn about John, you do, you do see, and this is represented, I think, really nicely in the comic in, in that it's respectful and also observant. And also interesting is that, I mean, he would make something and then something would happen and he would be, and he would either get thrown out of that, that endeavor or he would move somewhere else, or he had to do some silly, uh, stupid stuff, you know, or it can be argued he invented the village voice with a, uh, an index card on his first day in New York because he worked for a number of papers in, in London and Canada. And he was also a radio transcriptionist, I think, for, you know, like the guy who would write the news copy for somebody to read. Mm -hmm. And then he moved to New York with the idea to start a paper. Or rather, John doesn't deal well with time, And so he got, he moved to New York for the excitement of it. But then New York itself had to have some utility to him, for him. You know, it had to have a purpose. It couldn't just be you're going to New York and being around people. And so he wrote on a index card in the Branch Village, you know, if anybody else was interested in making a paper like that. And um, there was already The Villager, but I think that, which was its own paper, but I think John, as a reporter, kind of looked at it and saw it as like a really soft kind of, just this ineffective publication. And so he put out this call for writers, and then you were talking earlier about sort of like the money of the counter, you know, money of the counterculture. An idea is nothing without investors. And so a lot of John's experiences are actually providing ideas and then the investor and the money kind of controls it. And then he gets kind of kicked out of it. And that definitely happened with the village voice. He, so if you look at the village voice front page, his name is the only one on the front cover for the first issue. But, you know, he didn't get along well with Norman Mailer, which is one <laughs> of the funnier parts of, if you, if you read the comic, their dysfunction together is, I think one of the early high points of, of the comic, but, and we had we had a lot of fun with that. Scott drew an amazing the the page is uh some uh, like old 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 Norman Mailer haunts young Norman Mailer and it's sort of this <laughs> Yeah, I'm thinking I'm remembering it. Yeah. It is Yeah. And the, and the artwork is is so incredible and and seems so real. I mean, how did you guys, you know, research this? It's not just John's story, but it's like there are other there's detail in it yeah, that make yeah. it a, a sort of more of a reported piece. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, yeah, I mean, that's really, I mean, John's story is sort of like the anchor for things, but we go in a lot of different places on this comic with John sort of just being the, I guess, the metronome for it, you know, and we have our own stories from the 60s that we want to include in it. Each chapter is sort of broken up into a, a single year from John's, it's the full title of the book is John, John Wilcock, New York Years. And right now it's looking like 1954 through about 1970. We originally said 1971, but it might go to 1972. But each chapter is that one year. And if you think about like any time in history, there are very few decades 
other than sixties that have such a distinct timeline on, on itself, you know? So when you're, when we were thinking about like, how do we structure this book into something that actually has like kind of like a, a shape to it, the sixties have like a perfect story shape, you know? I mean, the, the early sixties, it sort of inherits the fifties the in this odd sense. And then it sort of goes through its own adolescence, you know, and tragedy with, with Kennedy and then civil rights and tragedy with civil rights with them, you know, um, Martin Luther King, and then also then drugs and, it's got its own perfect shape to it. So we address each year. Scott and I have sort of like a story meeting every new chapter because these things also are extremely exhausting. You know, each chapter is only 12 or 15 pages, but it's as much comics as we can do. I mean, I, I, <laughs> I mean, it's really, really tough stuff. And I can describe sort of the process on each page if that helps. Sure. Um, it starts with sort of like this existing uh, interview that I have with John and John would then still up until he had a stroke a number of years ago. So it's not as available or easy to do now as it was, but it used to be then I would have like sort of like a follow up with John about some things and he would be, his amount of recall was really good for like, well, you know, that, that would apply to this newspaper that I worked on or, oh yeah, you should probably email this person or whatever. So he would kind of facilitate the kind of thing you can't research, you know, the actual experience. But then he and I have a funny rule because, Nobody would uh, remember verbatim exchanges with people. So if he ha- if he doesn't remember certain dialogue, I get to make I get to I don't know if the term is uh, make it up, but I get to write it and um, or make it you know. And so that's like a funny funny agreement. But then I'll also I'll find some stuff out that doesn't really apply to his experience. It's wonderful. Like a great example being that he he would remember. Yeah, I saw that he saw you know after um, be, after an absence due to. Um, he lost his cabaret card. That was John's memory. And so I knew the other half of that, which was his heroin arrest. And so we would sort of like combine that into a piece. And so John has the experience of seeing Monk. And then we would also sort of give some backstory on on the heroin arrest. And so we would research that and, and, and compress it into nine or ten panels, which is really tough. You know, by the way, comics are really, really difficult because there's this rule of you never want to say something you can't show and you never want to show something you can't say. So like perfect comics are ones that only use text to say something that you can't draw and the other way around. And so, uh, but the process on the way these comics get made is that I'll make like a pretty extensive breakdown of the page that will indicate, you know, what the images should be at the scale that they should be and where the dialogue should be. And, um, and then I'll pass it to Scott who has this real gift for caricature, really sarcastic pen. You know, I've always, I mean, he's a, a wickedly talented person. And, and the one thing I could say about his, his illustrations before he and I worked together on these comics is that there wouldn't be this sort of scale alignment, you know, like um, certain, certain design stuff in the way that he would draw wouldn't as perfectly in a comic sense, you know, like a comic book sense and that you, you, your eye needs to sort of like move around the page. And so I would help give them sort of like some scale consistency with things. And then he sends in the art and then I'll tighten it up again and I'll, and then do the lettering. And this sounds like a long process. I'm, I'm sorry about this. Um, no, that's quite all right. So then I'll get the art, I'll get the art from him and then I'll 
pasted it up on the page and then move it around again and crop things and sort of tighten it up into being a comic. And then um, add lettering. I do I do the lettering in the word balloons. And then I do the first coat of color. And then Scott will then – so it's kind of like a baking process. You know, like we, we have the script. We put it in. He turns, he sends it back with the, the art. I send it back with the um, – tightened up with with the first coat of color and then he'll send it back with the highlights and so it's a huge amount of work just to get one page done well how long does it take you to do a chapter then a long time <laughs> <laughs> that's an easy easy answer well, well how, how... I, no i can I, I can answer that we, i mean we, we were thinking we could get the whole thing done okay so you're, you're approaching i hope you heard the pain in my in my voice when i said a long time because uh, you're so... still on it you're still on deadline i'm sure we're still yeah we're still on it but, I mean, so like the joke would be we have jokes that we just want to be able to okay so for doing a story that's like 12 years in john's life or something you know we we hope that it'll take that um that we can do two years we we'd hope that we could get the whole thing done in five years and but it actually looks like we can get about two years or two chapters done a year and we just want to actually keep in pace of real we don't want this to take more than 17 years <laughs> you know we don't want we, we don't want to take more than a year on a year oh my god so how, yeah how far are you in it we are at 1966 now yeah. Um, so, uh, which is finally where, it, you know, humorously, it's kind of like, I remember looking at 66 and 65 and I was like, well, hot dog, that's when we really should have started, you know, but, but the backstory is really terrific. And, and yeah, so we've got, I think like five years Yeah, I've, I've read, or five chapters ago. Yeah. I've read the first three chapters. It's, it's just wonderful stuff. Now, is it, it's all online now or? Yeah, well, actually, uh, so, okay. So ad advertisement number two. So, um, so ad one, uh, there's the real curtains, uh, collection from Fantagraphics, and then if you go to the website at um, which I wanted the shortest URL possible when uh -huh. I when I made when I made the URL. so my website is ep.tc and then uh, slash Wilcock and you can see you can see every everything that we posted there either there the first three chapters that you mentioned or um, also uh, the website boing boing wonderful website uh, has serialized pretty much every every page since then. You can then uh, we have a uh, print book of the first chapter or the first book we call it book one, which is years 1954 through 1963, and that's uh, available for purchase right there. It okay. looks great. Cool. Yeah. yeah well, I'm definitely going to yeah. order. I'm definitely going to order that. So I think we got a sense that you you still got a lot of work to do on this, and, and it's carrying. <laughs> well, you. a lot of joy though. I mean, it's, you're right. You know, yeah. It, it it the realist archive was its own kind of like oh my god, I still got a lot of work to do on that because I was four issues a month and it took i think it was its own process of about like six or ten years complete and you kind of you kind of have to make this agreement with yourself that this is like one of your projects and it's going to definitely be the biggest thing you're working on for that time but there's a lot of joy and pride in, in working on a, a long thing yeah i agree well at ethan uh, this has been great i really enjoyed our conversation definitely going to get the book looking forward to, to reading the rest of, of what you've got say again your 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 website so people can find yourself of course, yeah. Thank you. Um, it is. If you just look up my name, it'll show up immediately. And then the um, the the website is just a four four letter URL. It's ep. tc. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about digital media. Find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, and Podcast One. This week's episode was edited by Nicola Grisco. Amber Healy provided our web content. 
Nick Dupre wrote our theme music, and I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Hey, you've written a book. You can order copies of Turn Up the Volume, a Down and Dirty Guide to Podcasting on our website. Visit itsalljournalism.com and follow the link at the top of the page. Isn't it time you started your podcast? Do you like the work that we're doing here at It's All Journalism? Now you can show your support on our Patreon page. Follow the link at the top of our website and donate. For as little as a dollar a month, you can access exclusive content and receive updates about upcoming episodes. Donate a little bit more and we'll send you cool swag like our It's All Journalism mug or a signed copy of my podcasting book. There are even opportunities for you to submit ideas for future shows or even appear on an episode. Go to itsalljournalism.com and click on the Patreon link to find out more. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. Thanks for listening. The Finish the Game Podcast with your host, Sean Alexander. 12 play to Sean, across the 10, the 5, touchdown Seahawks! Hey, this is Sean Alexander, NFL MVP. Check out my podcast, Finish the Game, where I discuss sports and life lessons helping you become an MVP. The Finish the Game Podcast. Find it on iTunes, the Podcast One app, podcastone.com, or at WTOP.com. Search Podcast DC. The What's Working in Washington podcast with your host, Jonathan Aberman. We share this region's innovative, entrepreneurial, and creative spirit. This podcast tells impressive stories of passion and spunk taking place here in the D.C. region. It illustrates how the nation's capital is anything but the stuffy, bureaucratic, politics-only reputation it tries to shed. The What's Working in Washington podcast. Find it on iTunes, the Podcast One app, podcastone.com, or at WTOP.com. Search Podcast DC.